0: I'm Carl Franklin in Connecticut in the United States, and I've just recently started a ketogenic diet to take control of my metabolism.
1: Hi, I'm Richard Morris in Canberra, Australia. I've been on a ketogenic diet now since April 2014. When I started, I was very sick with complications from type 2 diabetes. Within six months of starting a ketogenic diet, All my biomarkers of disease had
0: disappeared. I also have type 2 diabetes, and we're going to share the progress of my journey through ketosis and Richard's experience thriving for years in ketosis. And hopefully, that might help a few people who are curious about this kind of dietary hacking.
1: We're not doctors, and we don't want to give anyone any specific medical advice. But we are keen to share our own experiences. We're actually both software developers, so we're not afraid of a little technical detail. Uh, We've done some research into our own deranged metabolisms and the science behind them, uh, and we hope to share some of that research. Where possible, we intend to put links in the show notes to cite the research supporting any claims that we make.
0: You'll probably work out pretty quickly that we're both foodies. And we're going to share some of the great food that we can eat on this diet. In every episode, both of us will share a recipe for an essential keto meal that we eat regularly. So, let's start podcast number four, The Big Fat Show. So, Richard, do we have any corrections or apologies from last week? Sure. I mentioned a Scotsman who holds the Guinness
1: World Record for the longest fast. I said that he fasted for 250 days. Mm -hmm. That was um, technically true. He did fast for 250 days, and then without eating anything else, he kept going for another 132 days, making the world record a total of 382 days.
0: And is he now the world's smallest man? (laughs) (laughs) How how does one do that? So he basically lived on his own fat stores for, for more than a year.
1: More than a year. He walked in very obese and he said, look, I intend to do this. I intend to, to not eat and for as long as you tell me that I'm in medically sound territory uh, and I just want you to keep track of me. And he'd, he'd come in on, on a regular basis to, to get blood draws and to have biomarkers tested. And uh, yeah, he, uh, he made it for 382 days and apparently never put the weight back on again.
0: Well, let me tell you where I'm at, and then I'd like to know where you are. I know that you've been exercising and fasting. I have not been exercising or fasting, and I've been on a plateau here roughly around the same weight, maybe dropping a couple of pounds a week, something like that, you know, for, for two weeks now. We looked this up. Apparently, it's a thing. Yeah. It's called P-I-S-S, and that's an acronym, so don't write letters. <laughs> It's an acronym that stands for post-induction stall syndrome. And this came out of the Atkins world, right? Right. Because induction is their first two-week or four-week diet that's pretty straight. It's basically the ketogenic diet for three or four weeks. Yeah. And uh, everybody goes through this phase, and apparently it's a thing. So what they say is that after your body sort of adjusts to burning fat, and you, you lose a lot of water weight immediately. And that's we as we have mentioned before, that's the glycogen reserves that we have right. in there. Yeah. They're three quarters water. Mm-hmm. After you lose that, your body sort of adjusts to the water and salt and all of that stuff and you slowly bring on more water weight. At the same time you're burning fat people might see a plateau and they might even see a bump and they might even see like a little rise in weight over, it could be a three or four week period, it could be six weeks. Right. Six weeks is where they say, okay, now if you haven't broken it in six weeks, you might need to intervene with some intermittent fasting or uh, some more exercise or, uh, or that kind of thing or just watch the hidden carbs. But pretty much it works itself out after a maximum of of six weeks. So
1: you really have to, at that point, after six weeks of uh, not losing, you you have to then start tracking everything you eat because it's possible that um, you're getting uh, uh, carbohydrates that you're not aware of and and that's that's forcing your your natural appetite
0: to eat more. Yep, so I'm just going to stick it out. I still feel great and I'm actually losing inches. So I noticed that. Um, while I, while the scale is telling me I'm of the same weight, um, uh, probably more of that is getting converted into muscle. As we know, muscle is heavier than fat.
1: It is. Yeah. The most important uh, area to measure yourself is right around your belly button because yeah. that's where all your visceral fat is. So as I mentioned last week for 18 months that I was in, on a plateau, uh, I lost about eight inches around my visceral section. So yeah. that was uh, yeah, that was a significant difference for me.
0: So I'm completely happy with this and I'm just going to wait it out. And that's what they say to do. And that's what I'm planning on doing. So what happened with you? I mean, I can see in your face, we're looking at each other via Skype and I can see in your face, you look even thinner than you did before.
1: Yeah. Thanks. I, I've I've lost about two and a half kilos just of water today. <laughs> I did a 36 kilometer bike ride. Um, now I, I've started doing these longer bike rides on a Sunday uh, about the same time that we started the podcast mm. so um, and I'm doing it because I, I just feel like getting out and doing something on yeah. the weekend and, and 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 I feel great afterwards mm. and, and the, the primary reason for doing it is not to add a calorie deficit mm. but to do something to drive down my insulin so mm. so I've been doing that now for three four weeks uh, last week I did uh, I two laps around the lake in the middle of Canberra this week I did one lap around the lake and that was 36 kilometers. And I think that's probably what I'm going to end up doing most weekends. So
0: great. Yeah. So I'm off my plateau and I'm feeling great. That's awesome. Um, we're on iTunes now we've arrived <laughs> and, uh, I'm no, I'm no stranger to podcasts. I had one of the first podcasts ever actually called net rocks. Yeah. Uh, still have it. Yeah. It's for programmers. But anyway, um, yeah, our, we're two keto dudes and, uh, I, I actually on my iPhone, I use a program, called uh, rss radio instead of itunes i i try to stay away from itunes and it's not because of anything i'm worried about it just uh just feels like so much overhead with updating all the time and yeah um i don't like the interface and they lock you into all this stuff i just don't use it so
1: i i absolutely i detest the interface of itunes that's yeah, terrible people have for many years have been telling me that Apple know about user interfaces. And I just say, yeah, have you seen iTunes? Yeah,
0: except for that.
1: <laughs> yeah, except for that.
0: Yeah, they're good on the phone. but
1: I've got an Android and I use uh, Pocket Casts, and that does a good job for me. In fact, it's actually an Australian product, but it's uh, it's well-known worldwide.
0: So. so the reason we wanted to be on iTunes is because once you get in that list, then all of the other podcast apps sort of pick up your feed. That's awesome. Yeah. And, uh, that's why we're there all right we've got some good feedback also on the show just a couple of minutes to acknowledge the people who have sent in kudos to us and um, we're we have comment sections on the website which we hope people will use we also belong to a closed facebook group called keto ninjas which is a is a lot of fun a lot of australians on that
1: there is a few i think that's it's partly my fault. No, they're mostly, it started out being Americans. I think I might have been the only Australian and then. <laughs> All right. And then I just, I told the Aussies. But, uh, yeah, that we, thanks for the feedback, everybody. Well, uh, I'm going to try and, uh, dial down the science a bit now that we've covered some, we've covered off some big topics that we yes. needed to get, uh, get through. The feedback was great. Um, some of it people said, Oh, that sounds like going to a science lecture. So I apologize for that. Yeah, I'll, I'll yeah. dial that back a bit. <laughs>
0: Well, we said it. So, if you wanna want the hardcore science, really, the first three episodes are, are are what that's all about. Yeah, pretty much. So let's talk about fat. Let's do a big fat show. When I tell people how much fat I eat, they're horrified. When they see me putting salt and butter, melting butter on my steak in a restaurant, people look at me like, "Well, that's why he's fat, right?" Exactly. Yeah, and it's just the opposite. People just don't understand. Yeah. This, yeah. Is,
1: this is how, we, this is, see, the thing is that fat, fat is a fuel, but it's, 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 you know, it's, it's a fuel just like glucose and protein, but mm. um, it's about twice as dense as any other fuel. So, one of the reasons that we've had this fat phobia for many years is if you take 100 grams of carbohydrate, let's say a block of sugar, 100 grams worth of sugar, and you take 100 grams of fat, like, you know, 100 mils of olive oil, for example, that olive oil is going to have twice the energy. Of the sugar, mm. gram for gram, so people think, "Oh, well, you know, if you eat fat, then you're um, you're going to obviously put it on." Um, and the problem is, of course, that uh, that people don't understand the, the fundamental biochemistry.
0: And it's true that you will put it on if you're eating carbohydrates. If you're eating more than 20 grams of carbohydrates, or whatever the magic number is for you, yeah, yes, the fat you eat goes right to where you. And, it, and it's my question is, if you eat carbohydrates and you're above the ketosis level, right? So you're burning glucose for fuel and then you eat, you know, let's say a tablespoon of butter or something like that. Does that butter go right to your thighs or does the sugar that you eat get converted into fat that goes to your thighs? Like how does that happen? Sure. So what happens is when you eat some sugar,
1: your body recognizes that your sugar levels are going up and it creates some insulin because it wants to utilize all that sugar. Yeah. And that insulin locks all of the fat off into it basically says, right, from now on we're burning we're burning all of our glucose and uh all of the fat we're going to shuffle into the into fat cells for storage.
0: So it does. It is true that the tablespoon of butter gets stored directly. Yeah. So basically they're right about, you know, when you eat fat, you get fat if you have carbohydrates.
1: Exactly. If you have enough carbohydrates for for your energy requirements and you eat some fat as well, that is exactly the story. Now, the interesting thing is when you don't eat, the carbohydrates you don't have very much carbohydrate your body is forced to predominantly fuel on fat mm-hmm. and as long as you don't eat a lot of carbohydrate um, your body is quite happy liberating the fat out of your fat stores that you've stored you know maybe a decade ago you ate a Krispy Kreme a decade ago and yeah. you didn't need to burn it immediately it's now stored as, as body fat you can then uh, access that uh, from your uh, your body
0: all right so Let's say you are in ketosis and you eat just enough, you know, calories with the proper ratios, fat, protein, scant carbs, the ketogenic diet. You eat just enough calories to burn, all right? Right. Nothing else gets burned. Great. You're at equilibrium. Everything's cool. Nothing gets stored Great. That's right. What happens if you eat more calories? Now let's say those calories are from fat. Let's yeah. say we eat, let's say we eat another thousand calories or 500 calories of fat. What ha- is it like carbohydrates that when there's too much of the fuel, the other stuff gets stored? Does that get stored as fat or is it just sort of slowly burned off? you know, in your sleep or whatever?
1: No, there's a limit to how much you can carry in your blood. You only have five liters of blood running around your body. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Um, So there's only a limit to how much you can't have too much of a concentration of anything in in your blood. It it likes to have levels of everything. So what will happen is your your fat cells will store that, that extra thousand calories. So it is quite possible on a ketogenic diet, if you eat too many calories, that you will put on weight. And if you eat less calories than you burn, then you will lose weight. The trick about the ketogenic diet is, or one of the tricks about the ketogenic diet, is that you get satiated a lot quicker because you have access to stored body fat. Mm. So where somebody is um, uh, uh, eating carbs, when their blood sugars go low, they have to go find a a candy bar. They need a candy bar stat, you know. Uh, Whereas if somebody is well position to be able to burn body fat, then when their blood sugar goes a little bit low, they have access to energy. They have access mm. to energy reserves that they could use.
0: Yeah. And the overeating thing is key because when you're eating carbohydrates or too much, you're not in ketosis, let's say, Hmm. On the carbohydrate yeah. metabolism, let's call it that. On the carbohydrate yeah. metabolism, if uh, when you eat carbs, the, in, the higher insulin levels prohibit that leptin receptor that tells your brain you're, you're full. And this is unnatural, folks. This is not normal, healthy eating. Being in ketosis is really the natural, it's the original metabolic state of our bodies. It has to be. We're all born in ketosis. Yeah, we're all born in ketosis, right. So this is a more natural state. And when you have had enough, you don't want to eat anymore. You feel, like I said before, I feel nauseated if I eat too much. Yes. And that's the proper signal, isn't it?
1: Had you ever felt that before? No. Before
0: doing a ketogenic diet? Not unless I was in ketosis, no. So technically, Richard, what is fat? Technically, fat is something called a triglyceride. All right, and basically, it's
1: three fatty acids that are joined by glycerol. Um, and fatty acids can be monounsaturated, polyunsaturated, or saturated fatty acids. Okay, um, and most fats are a combination of all three. For example, lard is 50% monounsaturated fatty acid, and monounsaturated, for example, uh, oleic acid is a fatty acid in olive oil, that's where the oleic name oh, okay. comes from lard of course is pig fat the mm-hmm. 50% of lard is monounsaturated fatty acid mm. everybody calls that the monounsaturates, the good fats. Yeah,
0: the good fats.
1: Yeah, so the vegans call them the good fats. That Everybody everybody agrees that these are good fats.
0: Avocados are in that category.
1: Avocados in that category. So not everybody agrees on the other fatty acids, but certainly for the, the monounsaturates, everybody's
0: okay. happy with those. The polyunsaturated, what about those? Those sort of are in the middle.
1: Okay, so t- lard is 50% monounsaturated, 10% polyunsaturated, and 40% saturated fatty mm. acids. And the poly, polyunsaturates... I've got multiple double bonds, and basically uh, they can be either Omega-3, Omega-6, Omega-9, Omega-7, and it really depends on where the first double bond appears is, is how they get categorized. Now,
0: scientifically, for most people, those are just names. What- but what, yeah. do they, what do they mean, uh, and do we need to know? Do we even need to know what they mean?
1: Yeah, they're actually the probably the most critical thing to know about fats, the most critical health um, issue, because okay. the polyunsaturated fats that we eat uh, eventually go to make the outside of all of our cells. Mm. All of our cells are sheathed with polyunsaturated fatty acids that we've eaten at some point. Now, the omega-3s are known as anti-inflammatory. That is... Uh, you understand the process of inflammation, you have, a, you have an injury uh, or you know a, a, a part of your body gets scratched or something and it swells up, it gets mm. red and it gets inflamed. Mm. This is all a natural process. There's basically two processes. Omega-3s contribute uh, to reducing inflammation mm. and Omega-6s contribute to increasing inflammation. Oh. And we want, to, we want to balance. And so it's important from a dietary point of view to balance these two off against each other.
0: What are some examples of omega-6?
1: Seed oils, for example. Canola oil is an omega-6 polyunsaturated fatty acid. Uh, A good example of an omega-3 would be cod liver oil.
0: Or fish oil in general.
1: Fish oil. or The the only uh, plant one that I know of is flax oil. Any fish that lives on deep-sea plankton, omega-3 actually comes from the plankton. It's all made by the plankton and the fish is just eating the plankton and then. So, um, you
0: can, if you don't eat flax and you don't eat a lot of fatty fish, the best thing to do is take a supplement, right?
1: I actually do. I take a a krill oil supplement every day um, for omega 3s and I try and limit the amount of omega 6 polyunsaturated fats in my diet so that I have close to a one to one relationship. If you actually have a look at the modern diet that most of us eat, it's like 60 to one, 60 yeah. omega-6 uh, omega 6 to one omega-3. And and this is because we our diet is so full of seed oils.
0: Now, why? Why is that? Is it because processed foods use a lot of seed oils? and
1: Yeah, it's also very cheap.
0: Yeah. One of the staples of the ketogenic diet, at least where flowers are concerned, is almond meal, right? Right. So almond is a nut. Yeah. And is that an omega-6 fat that's in almond meal? It is an omega-6 fat. That's right. Mm. And
1: it, so uh, as a macadamias and almonds, um, there is omega-6 um, oils in all of those. Wow. So, so it's, important, uh, it's important to counterbalance those with a little bit of uh, fish oil. I mean, unless you unless you have a lot of fish oil in your diet.
0: Right. That's really good to know because, you know, people on the keto diet, we don't we don't have processed food. I mean, I haven't eaten a, any processed food in months, but yeah. um, but I'm, you know, I cook with olive oil. I cook with butter. That's a saturated fat, but we'll talk about that next. Mm. But I I try to limit my exposure to nuts cuz I know that they're good carbohydrates to have, you know, just as snacks and things. And I also take the fish oil supplements. So All right, let's talk about butter. Butter is something that I eat a lot of. (laughs) Yeah,
1: butter is actually uh, uh, mostly saturated fat. Mm -hmm. We learned early on that people who have heart attacks have a lot of saturated fat in their blood, Mm. and we jumped to the conclusion that people who have saturated fat in their blood got that way from eating it. Yeah. And therefore, butter must be bad and lard must be bad because, yeah. uh, you know, 40% of lard is saturated fat. And right. so we, we jumped to this conclusion. We did the same thing with cholesterol as well, right? Mm-hmm. We, we said, well, people who have heart attacks have a high level of cl- certain types of cholesterol in their, in their blood, therefore don't eat any cholesterol. And it turns out that the liver makes most of your cholesterol. Very few people actually get cholesterol in their blood
0: from cholesterol that they ate. So let's say this. If you're in ketosis, saturated fat affects you a lot differently than if you're not in ketosis. That's exactly right. If you're not in ketosis, you eat fat, saturated fat. It's going to get stored, as we said before. Your liver, therefore, is going to pump more fat into your bloodstream from the sugar. And Mm. if you are in ketosis, however, that is just another fat source.
1: Yes. So one of the interesting things about saturated fat is the more that you eat, the less you have in your blood. Yeah. And the more carbs you eat, the more saturated fat you have in your blood. And the reason for this is when you're in ketosis, you've you've trained your body to burn fat. Mm. All of your cells are burning fat. The first fat that they burn, a- is apparently saturated fat. So they clear all they draw all that down first. Huh. And so what's left in your body is all of the non-saturated fats. So they're <laughs> left in your blood. And then it get then it gets to those next. So this is why somebody who is who is a fat burner and their cells are predominantly burning fat has lower saturated fat.
0: That is so contradictory to the conventional wisdom that everybody seems to have because we haven't been in ketosis for as our whole lives we haven't been in ketosis. And we should have been. We, we, it's a very it's a very metabolically
1: advantaged state to be in, yes.
0: So good fats, bad fats, we hope we've cleared up some of that mystery now. Uh, the whole key is the amount of carbs that you're eating. If you're in ketosis, you're eating less than 20 grams of carbs a day. Fat is your primary fuel source. It does not go into your bloodstream. It reduces the fat in your bloodstream. So therefore, just be careful of those uh, omega-6 oils which you have to balance out with fatty fish or fish oil.
1: Yeah. You know, the, a lot of people religiously, literally religiously, eat fish once a week, mm-hmm. and that's actually a good habit to get into, um, as is fasting, which is another tradition from religious observances. So mm-hmm. um, fasting is another Important um, way to uh, regulate your metabolism, and we'll do a whole show on fasting at some
0: point. Yeah, right. And uh, here's the other thing about fish, though. Uh, you may be worried about it because our our waters are so damaged and polluted that there's a lot of poison in the fish. Um, a lot more lead than we actually thought is in fish. Yeah. Is there any way to test it? Is there any testing thing you can get? to take a piece of fish and find out oh this has too much lead in it Uh, you know and no amount of lead is enough or safe but you know other heavy metals like mercury is very commonly found in fish. All of the heavy metals will and that's because the fish are pretty much on the top of their food chain and so
1: they're eating things that eat things that eat plankton that's picking up all of these heavy metals from the the bottom of the lakes and uh, rivers, mm. um, and and the ocean. Um, so uh, there are food labs that you can you can send samples of food to to be assayed. I've gone through looking at the process, and it's like uh, two or three hundred dollars per sample, and so it's not. Economically viable for
0: us. That's absolutely not viable. Yeah. So you can't just buy some fish from the grocer and say, hang on, uh, I'm going to just put this in my fridge for a couple of weeks until my $200 sample comes back and then I'll think about (laughs) eating it. You can't do that. That would be unrealistic. So, what do you? What is one to do about that?
1: Have a good relationship with your fishmonger. In Australia, and I, I know it was slightly different when I lived in America, but in Australia, we we import a lot of frozen fish from Vietnam uh, and Thailand and uh, other areas in Southeast Asia. And uh, if the fishmonger doesn't know you, and you go and ask for some fish. He'll probably sell you some frozen stuff that he's thawed out in his front front counter. Uh, but if you go to, if you know him and you build up a relationship and you say, what's good eating today, he can identify a fish that was caught locally or that was...
0: But he doesn't know the mercury content of his fish any more than you do when you buy it, does he? No. Well, I won't belabor that. But, you know, there is no way to be careful except to not eat it. And so, uh, you know, there you go. Take... Take that away and do what you want with it. All right, you have a book that you want to talk about.
1: This show is The Big Fat Show, and we named it that after a book called The Big Fat Surprise, which was a book (laughs) written by Nina Tychols. We'll include a link to a really interesting uh, video of her presentation during her presentation book launch. She did a presentation to the Commonwealth Club and she uh, did an interview post-presentation with Jack Krauss. So it's an interesting explanation of how we got so messed up when it comes to fats.
0: I watched that and I thought it was brilliant. Oh, it's outstanding.
1: As I mentioned before, the, there was an observation that people who have heart attacks and diabetes have a lot of saturated fat in the blood. And it all comes back to this guy Ansel Keys again, because in the 70s, he came up with this concept well actually the 60s he came up with this concept called the diet heart hypothesis and the hypothesis was uh, that people who eat lots of saturated fat and lots of cholesterol end up with lots of heart attacks and he was able to see these things in the blood and that that was the nature of his hypothesis but he sold it to everybody using an analogy a plumbing analogy which doesn't really make a lot of sense when you think about it but and you've probably heard this before that saturated fats clog your arteries and they give you heart disease like bacon grease clogs your sink yeah but of course our bodies run at a higher temperature than room temperature mm. and it's not an issue of, of fats solidifying in your veins but right. uh, it was an easy metaphor for people to understand and so um he did this uh, seven country study which you mentioned in the in the first show um and he was looking for uh, a correlation between uh, and he found in his seven countries, a correlation between low consumption of saturated fat and low risk of heart attacks. But Nina Tichols explains it much better than I do. But basically, he cherry-picked all of the countries that would support his hypothesis, like um, uh, Crete and Greece and Italy, and ignored all of the countries that have a high saturated fat uh, diet and have low incidence of of heart disease like Mm. france switzerland and germany all these places eat a lot of cheese Uh, they don't have a lot of heart attacks
0: and also the inuit and the Maasai were another two that he completely missed
1: exactly so he was very
0: selective he also he took thirteen thousand surveys food surveys of
1: to try and find out what people ate but his data was so bad that he threw away all but about 500 of them so it was a very small uh, unreliable sample of his data right Um, and he also one of his standout areas that he that basically they loved and they kept going back to West Crete where they found that people were very long-lived and yet had a very low saturated fat um, diet during the time when they did their assay turns out they were actually testing these people during lent and they were all they were all um, uh, giving up meat and and, uh, and fatty foods for lent so uh, they got an unrealistic um, representation of what these people ate Go forward about uh, to 1977, and and there was a a committee, a Senate committee set up by McGovern, who the outcome of this committee was to review all of the data and come up with a plan for America. And um, Senator McGovern famously said, we don't have the luxury of time to wait until we have all the evidence. And they came up with a solution, which was that a low-fat diet restricting meat and dairy products should be recommended for all Americans over the age of two. And they turned this into the food pyramid. In 1980, they the USDA suggested to replace dietary fat um, with healthy, quote-unquote, air quotes, healthy carbohydrates. And we ended up with the food pyramid, and, and pretty much that gave us all diabetes. So long, long story short.
0: So Richard, there's one thing in the news that caught my eye this week, which is uh, February 15th, this study paper was published. Uh, about a study, and this was in your neck of the woods, actually. It was in Melbourne. Yeah. University of Melbourne.
1: Yeah. I I've, I know of this study. It was This is Sofandracopoulos, and he's he was in all the press, and he was talking about how the paleo diet uh, causes diabetes. Right. That was, that was his bottom line, and that's what the press all picked up on.
0: So the title of the paper is, A Low-Carbohydrate, High-Fat Diet Increases Weight Gain and Does Not Improve Glucose Tolerance, Insulin Secretion, or... Beta cell mass in NZO mice. That means New Zealand in origin, right? New Zealand obesogenic mice,
1: yeah. The New Zealand mice have stuffed us up again. (laughs) Yeah. So there's a couple couple of interesting things here. Those mice are bred specifically to get fat. Uh, they're the New Zealand obesogenic mice. Uh, they have a, a problem in their DNA in, where they don't uh, tolerate well uh, uh, calories. They just eat and eat and eat and don't stop eating, and they become fat.
0: And so that has nothing to do with the carbohydrates that they are eating? That doesn't matter if they're eating? It has nothing to do with the food. We looked at the chow that they were given, the low-carbohydrate, high-fat diet, and we're going to publish links to the study, which has links to the papers that have the the chow ingredients here. Sure. And let's talk about their, uh, what this chow is. 400 grams per kilogram of it is cocoa butter. So mm, 40, 40%, <laughs> right? Pretty much, yeah. 20% of it is casein. That's a milk protein, a yeah. Milk protein. Yep. Milk protein. Uh, 10% of it is sucrose. Now that's sugar. Sugar. 10% of what they were fed was pure sugar. Uh, another ten percent canola oil, which, as you know, is a an omega six fat. Yes. Ten uh, percent was clarified butter. Yeah. Five percent cellulose, and then we have traces of calcium carbonate. Uh, Vitamins. All, all the
1: essential and ing- essential nutrients. Yeah, essential micronutrients.
0: Exactly. So,
1: so, so, what they're being fed there is essentially white chocolate. If you take basically white chocolate, it's cocoa butter, sugar, and and milk. There's a little bit of clarified butter. is your milk fat. Your casein is your milk protein. Um, you've got sucrose in there. So it's basically a, a low sugar version of milk, added to cocoa butter and sugar. Yeah. And it was these mice. They were ad libitum, which basically means the mice were allowed to eat as much of this white chocolate as they wanted. And they're mice who were specifically bred to not stop eating. They're they're little porkers and they'll just just pile it on. And the other interesting thing about this is that in a low-carb metabolism, mice behave differently than humans. Uh, There was a paper done by Richard Feynman who identified that these mice, identified all the differences between how a human behaves when they have a low-carb diet and a mouse behaves. So you can't actually really use Any mice is a model for this particular kind of thing. You really have to use humans. And uh, this particular mouse is is even worse. So it looks like this entire entire study was designed to uh, produce the outcome that it got.
0: And you have sort of a history with the uh, Diabetes Association in Australia. You're always arguing with these guys. They seem to have an agenda that promotes a low-fat... A uh, high carbohydrate diet for diabetics.
1: Yeah, it, they do. I I remember I've got still got the material that uh, that I was given when I was first diagnosed as diabetic, and uh, the sample diet that they wanted me to go on was uh, extremely high carbohydrate. It's a low fat diet. It was probably going to uh, lower my um, lower my weight at the cost of uh, large glucose excursions and. High glucose is where you get all of the problems for diabetes. Yeah. So uh, you know i'm I'm happy that I was able to find something that was able to keep my glucose under control. Uh, but that uh, that diet that I was uh, given as part of my initiation to having type 2
0: diabetes wouldn't have done that. I, I was at a bookstore, which you know you would think that books on nutrition in a bookstore, are authoritative. And I I found this diabetic cookbook for type 2 diabetes, and I pulled it off the shelf, and I just started looking through the recipes and stuff. And they're all low-fat, high-sugar recipes. What on earth compels people to think that this is going to work for them?
1: Yeah. Diabetes for dummies. There's a recipe in there that uh, it's an eight-servings recipe, that one of its ingredients is half a pound of sugar. So uh, the theory is... That I'll give you the explanation for why these very good and very clever people and well-intentioned people are doing something extremely evil. Their hypothesis is most of the people who have type 2 diabetes are overweight and they tend to get get overweight first and then a little bit later their blood sugars rise and they start getting all of the problems of diabetes. And the assumption is that because they were overweight first, and then they got high blood sugar second, that being overweight causes high blood sugar. So the focus for diabetes is to try and get people's weight off. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. The problem, as we mentioned last week on the on the insulin show, uh, Dr. Kraft found out that 10 years before somebody's blood sugar starts to go up, they're already hyperproducing insulin. And so well before they're actually putting on weight, they've got this problem with their insulin mechanism. That hyperinsulinemia. anemia... Uh, that causes both being overweight and the high blood sugar. I've spoken to diabetes educators in both America and Australia, and they both tried to sell me on high carbohydrate, low fat diets. Their focus is on dropping people's weight because their theory is the weight causes diabetes. But in fact, they're both two symptoms of the same problem. And you need to get people's insulin down. And the only way to do that is to stop them eating things that make their insulin go up, which is basically carbohydrates and protein so we have to have some protein we have to have just enough to maintain our body Um, any beyond that is unnecessary or is surplus to requirements so we get all of our energy from fat because fat doesn't increase insulin all right
0: i think it's recipe time recipes 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 all right i'm gonna go first this time yeah sure i uh actually uh found this recipe from a friend of ours uh brenda zorn one of the keto ninjas yeah one of the keto ninjas and she basically says this is a staple among ketoers everywhere okay it's fathead pizza ah now fathead is a blog uh, or a movie, I guess, right? It was
1: a movie, yeah. Uh, yeah, that's right.
0: The uh, subtitle is, You've Been Fed a Load of Bologna. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so basically what came out of this is the older brother's oldest son's faux carb pizza. Okay. And then we say faux carb because it's a pizza that is made with some almond meal. The crust is. But let me tell you something. It is pizza. It tastes like pizza? It is pizza. Nice. Yeah, so I went over to... uh our friend, our friend's house, you know who I'm talking about, mm-hmm. the uh, M.M.'s. Yeah. I went over to their house. They're both doing keto. And I said, hey, how about pizza? And they're like, pizza? Mm, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so uh, we'll provide the link. But here's the crust. It's one and a half cups of shredded mozzarella, mm-hmm. three quarters of a cup of almond flour, mm-hmm. two tablespoons of cream cheese, which is essentially one ounce, one egg, a little garlic salt. And you're going to need parchment paper and a cookie sheet. Right. Put the mozzarella in the cream cheese, which is cut up into small chunks, in a microwave-safe bowl. Mm -hmm. And you microwave for one minute. And then you stir it, and then another 30 seconds. So that's
1: going to melt it a little bit, right?
0: Yeah, it melts the cheese. And you know when mozzarella melts, it gets all stringy? Oh, yeah. You ever notice that quality in pizza dough yes
1: actually it does yeah
0: that's those so it's got that stretchiness protein yeah. chains that are stretching it's mm. the same stuff all right so then you want to take it out so you've done it for a minute stirred it another 30 seconds on on high then you put in the egg and the almond flour and you stir it and you stir it and you stir it and you stir it and, stir it, and it, it has that consistency of dough it's stretchy it's hard to incorporate the egg in there just take a fork and just keep beating it in and beating it in and beating it in it's all right if there are little blotches of cream cheese in there. No problem. So then you basically plop it down on parchment paper and you just spread it out with a big couple of big spoons, or you can use your hands. You might want to wet your hands.
1: So you don't need to aerate it, turn into a foam or anything like no, that, no. which you'd expect from a from a dough.
0: But here's the thing, it's a thin crust pizza, so it's gonna be crispy. Ah of it's course. not gonna rise. And cheesy too. And cheesy. It's gonna to be like a cheesy a cheesy crispy pizza. Yeah. They're the best kind. All right, so once you've spread it out as thin as it can go without, you know, completely air, right? Mm. You want to poke holes with a knife or a fork in it. So that's called docking. Docking, yeah. Sprinkle a little garlic salt over it. 425 degree Fahrenheit oven. That'd be around about 220 Celsius. All right. So put that in for eight minutes. Eight minutes, pull it out, and you're going to see some bubbles. And you're going to see a little, just a little touch of browning. Again, take a knife or a fork and ban those bubbles down. Maybe you like bubbles. I don't know. But yeah. but the problem with bubbles is that they tend to brown really fast because there's they're a lot thinner. Thin, yeah. So pound them down, put it back in for another four to six minutes or until brown on top. And it looks delicious right now. Now, any toppings <laughs> that you put on this... Should be fully cooked already. Right. So you're not going
1: to cook them on the pizza. No. You're just going to melt the cheese and that's it.
0: Right. So you want to put maybe crumbled sausage, you know, maybe you want Mm. some mushrooms that you sauteed. Some chorizo. Some chorizo. Yeah. Some pepperoni. Now, pepperoni, I would also, I would crisp those up in a pan as well. Yeah. Um, maybe you want some herbs like some fresh basil, some fresh oregano, that kind of stuff. Maybe you mm. want a little Parmesan on there.
1: Yeah.
0: And, of course, mozzarella. Yeah. Now, when before you put it back in the oven, turn the broiler on. Okay. Turn it on broil. Mm-hmm. Because that's going to bring the heat down from the top instead of up from the bottom. Now, the crust is already crispy. So now you want heat from the top to, to melt the cheese and brown whatever's on there.
1: We uh, In Australia, we call that a grill yeah. So it's a, the grill is a function of an oven, yeah,
0: not a broil. Sauce, right? Because I know mm. everybody likes sauce. Yeah. I would be careful about tomato sauce.
1: Yeah, tomato. tomatoes got some sugar in them, yeah.
0: You make your own tomato sauce, don't you? And I've done yeah. it myself. Yeah. It takes a lot of tomatoes, though. It does. You basically have to put them all through a sieve and get out all the...
1: Yeah, I don't do that. I leave the seeds. I leave the fiber in there. Yeah. All right. <laughs> Yeah.
0: Well, anyway, there's a low carb sauce out there called Rouse R-A-O apostrophe S. And for a half a cup, you have like four grams, net grams of carbs, but it's all sugar. That's the problem. They're sugar carbs. They're not fiber carbs. So uh, what I did was I did not use sauce. I put down garlic and olive oil and I just sort of sprinkled that around. Yeah, I, I use the back of a spoon when I make pizzas
1: so to spread the olive oil, yeah. Yep,
0: olive oil, crushed garlic. Then I put on uh, feta, mm. feta cheese, a nice. Greek cheese that's wonderful, mm-hmm. um, and sausage, mm-hmm. and then mozzarella, and then sautéed spinach oh, on the nice. top of the mozzarella yeah. and then sprinkled some uh, basil and oregano on that. And let me tell you uh, something, that is just amazing. Yeah,
1: that sounds awesome.
0: I really actually thought that I would, after a couple of months, go to New Haven, Connecticut, to Pepe's Pizza, which is the best pizza in the world, by the way.
1: Uh, I'll take your word for it.
0: Yeah, even, even our friend Richard Campbell, who has had a, been all over the world and has had the best pizza, he th- he... Okay, Richard, what do you think? This is the best pizza I've ever had in my life. <laughs> okay, awesome. So, Pepe's. Anyway, uh, so I thought I would have to go to Pepe's because the urge was be too great. But after having this, I don't need to. It's so mm. good. Crispy crust. You you can hold it. You can pick it up. Nice. And eat it New York style. Nice. And you're full after a couple of pieces. That's the best part. How wonderful is that? Yeah, because it's full of fat. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. So that's my recipe. What do you got? Awesome. Well, I'm going
1: to do. I I've actually been smoking meat today. Uh, I've got a. a you shouldn't a meat smoke smoker. meat.
0: It's bad for your lungs. It is.
1: Bad. <laughs> 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 boom boom. <laughs> so uh, uh, today I've been smoking. As I say, I've been smoking meat, and I I actually uh, I smoked some lamb shoulder now um mm. I'm, the recipe i'm doing is actually is pulled lamb and you don't need a smoker you don't need a fancy smoker to to get flavor and i just use a smoker because uh it's an easy way to get flavor th- through the top sort of centimeter of the meat surface right. sure uh, what you can do is you can rub the meat beforehand and uh, you make a wet rub using a little bit of oil some salt and your favorite herbs and spices mm-hmm and then you put it in a slow cooker, and you put it in with a bay leaf and a little bit of water. Uh, I actually use uh, – sometimes I use whey left over for making cheese or yeah. chicken stock or what have you. You basically put it in a slow cooker, and uh, the point of having a little bit of water in the bottom is you're trying to stop the meat from catching until – the, there's been enough time for some some of the fats to render out of the meat and to p- provide some lubrication, and then you just you basically cook the meat in a slow cooker, basically until the meat's falling off the bone.
0: Wow, um, nice. And
1: normally normally it takes about six hours. The reason I use a shoulder joint is that it's one of the fattiest parts of the of the beast, and in the case of lamb, it's not normally trimmed out much, so you end up with a lot of the fat left
0: there. Now, why why wouldn't you use a why would you use a slow cooker as opposed to a pressure cooker?
1: So you can use a pressure cooker, but uh, the reason why I use a slow cooker is because the shoulder is a large joint and doesn't fit in my pressure cooker. Yeah. But also, um, the thing about the pressure cooker is you put the lid on and you set it going. You can't sort of go in and taste it and see where it's at. You need to mm. to dial down the pressure uh, and undo it all before you have a look at it. And so uh, it's a little bit less precise Um, today I, um, I smoked a beef shoulder a pork shoulder and yesterday I did a goat shoulder and a lamb shoulder and each of them is going to spend some time in the slow cooker so the trick that I do is once I've got the meat so that it's falling off the bone I get a couple of forks a fork in each hand and I start shredding it all up and once I've shredded it all up, I portion them. portion the meat into, I put basically put a large cup on a scale and I put a, a, a freezer bag inside the cup and I fill the cup with shredded meat until I get about 200 grams. Now, 200 grams for Julie and I is a meal for each of us. So I'm basically taking portioning of the meat. Uh, I, I then roll it up and you'll see on my blog how I did this, but I roll them up and freeze them and this weekend, I've spent time basically preparing 10 kilos worth of meat. That's going to last me for about three or four months. Yeah. you know. And then when you need to use this, you've got a bag in the freezer with 200 grams of pulled meat that's frozen solid. Drop that freezer bag into some warm water. It'll thaw out. Chuck it in a pan, put a bit of fat in the pan, maybe some uh, tomato puree or a couple of herbs in there, and uh, in about two or three minutes you've got a, a well cooked meal. And you know the meat's been well cooked and the flavours, you know, throughout the meat. And it's uh, right. It's uh, it's a very quick way, a very convenient way of uh,
0: getting a meal on a plate. Wow, that sounds delicious. Oh, it is. It <laughs> <And I'm> is. <laughs> gonna have to try it. <laughs> well, Richard, i that's a show. I love doing these shows with you. This is so much fun. Yeah, they're great. And we encourage your feedback. If you want to email us, it's dudes at 2ketodudes.com. Dude, we've got an email address. We do. We're on iTunes. We got a, We have arrived, my we're, friend. We're here. So, what's that address again? Dudes at 2ketodudes.com. That's the number two. And ketodudes.com. And of course, go to 2ketodudes.com and we have comments there you could uh, comment on your phone of course uh, but go to the website or send us an email we'd love to hear from you
1: and look on our show all our show notes have got uh, references from from each of our shows and uh pictures of our recipes that we've got so
0: right and lots of science as richard said you could you could lose yourself in the science if you really want to we'll see you next time on two keto dudes